0: Good morning. Good morning. Hey, everybody watching online, folks here, yeah, one round of applause for the fact we're here. I love it. I was just sitting with somebody on the way up here, and they're like, hey, how you feeling? I was like, nervous. And they're like, well, that's probably your sin. But they asked me why. They asked me why, and I was like, I forgot what people are like. All that to say, so excited to be with you guys watching online, excited to be back in-person kids' ministry, which for many of you means you can be here in person. Shout out to everyone with littles and kids. But I really am pumped for today. I'm excited to start a whole new series to see where God's going to take us. I'm excited to embark on a new journey through God's Word. But before we do that, if y'all would, pray with me. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the gift that it is to come and gather as your church, your people, all different kinds of locations, spread out, all across, but faithfully united in you. I'd ask that you please do what only you can do, and that's change lives. Would you please come, help me to be more like you, help those of us here who know you, who call you Lord, who call you Messiah and King, to be more like you. And Lord, I pray too, the folks here who who are wrestling with you, wondering whether or not you're true, you're right, it's all real, or if it's like a Christmas story fable told to kids so they can grow up with a sense of morality, change their eternity. Do for them what you have done for us. We need your help. It's in your name we pray. Amen. There's a statement that I've said to my wife, Taylor, now countless times. Right? It's a statement that it means a lot to me and her. It's a statement that means a lot to even other people. They understand the significance of it. But there's something different about it. I've said this statement repeatedly. But the times that I say it, it means something different. Almost every time. Here's a statement. I love you. Pretty simple. Pretty upfront. I imagine you, or I hope that you, have said this to a family member A dear friend, a loved one, a spouse, I love you. First time I said it to Taylor, we were dating. I had all these butterflies. It was this big moment. It's like, are you supposed to say this? I'm a Christian. I don't know. Do you wait till a wedding day? I have no idea, but I'm just going to say it anyways. I can remember going and saying, I love you. By the grace of God, she lit up like a Christmas tree. I love you too. It's this huge emotional moment. And it meant this sense of, I really care about you. I can remember there was a time when we were dating in the relationship, it wasn't just up and to the right, it was totally rocky, it was broken, through that sin had even entered into the relationship, and we're sitting there and we're talking about, should we continue, should we not? And yet, despite all that, I said, I love you, it meant something different. There was a moment, and, and a lot of you won't respect me as much at the end of this part, but that's okay, there was a moment we were driving down the road, and I did that thing where you really like, start to get to know a relationship, I farted. Yeah. Yeah. You fart, too. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's weird. Welcome to the Springs. We'll keep moving after this. I'm, I'm so sorry. But I farted, and it was terrible. It was a painful moment. It was just bad. She'll tell you about it. It was like nasal violence, right? But it was through that, not in that moment. I'm not that dumb. But later on, I still said, I love you. The time I proposed, I dropped to one knee and I said, I love you. And it came with a sense of, I want you. The moment I stood taking the wedding vows and I said, I love you. And it's this call to I commit to you. Till death, you and me. The moment right before the birth of our first daughter, Lily, it's an exciting thing. We were, we were driving, right? We're driving to the hospital and there's this sense of excitement and euphoria, young couple, newly married, all that kind of stuff. I love you. The moment after our, our daughter Lily was born, for a few weeks there, we thought she was gonna die. I can remember thinking in a hospital wing, it was, it was the night after her birth, we thought she was gonna die, and I can remember looking at Taylor, and the only thing I could think of is, I hear when you lose a child, it's really bad for a marriage. I can remember saying to her in the hallway, I love you. It was, it was the same statement, but this redeclaration of I'm with you, till the end, you and me. The time when we brought Lily home, you put her in the car seat, you bring her in the house, I love you, Taylor. The time where you come and you navigate the ups and downs of life, I love you. The time where I come and because of my sin and my brokenness, I break her heart, I do something offensive and unholy, and in my repentance, I remind, I strengthen, I encourage, and I say, hey, sweetie, I love you. I said the exact same thing every single time, but it meant something different many a times. Why is that? Why is that? And many of you, you you probably already know. Context. The context had changed. The situation, the moment, the reading of the room, what had happened before, what was happening after, where were we in that moment? The context had changed. Here's why that matters. When you and I say things, they mean something but when you say the right thing in the right context, it means something different. It means something more. Here's why I'm so pumped to talk about context. We are starting today a new journey through the book of Matthew, where we are gonna work our way through this beautiful gospel. It's this biography of the life of Jesus. It's an examination of his life through a lens that we're gonna talk about. But one of the things that I imagine is perhaps true for you it was certainly true for me as I had read this book I'd opened it I checked it out I'd read through it I'd seen it and yes I was encouraged I was strengthened by it but I never really understood the context I never really got what was happening before what was set to happen right after what is God communicating not just with the words that are written but in the whole picture what is taking place in the nation of Israel In the city of Jerusalem, under the empire of Rome, how is this book written by a tax collector for you, for me, as well as then, a first century Jewish audience, how is it a declaration, the King Messiah has come? It's true. It's real. He's a fulfillment of all that was told. He died for you. He died for me. And he didn't stay dead. You see, I think we've read Matthew, or we've read other books of the Bible, but oftentimes we don't grasp context. The first thing that I want to do today is remind you and I, as we start this book, context changes everything. I love you from the moment of proposal. I love you the moment in the hospital. I love you. Just the simple moment of a date night with my wife is we finally get a sitter after the birth of our second born. I go out and I just take her by the hand as we go to eat tacos. Same thing, but the context matters. So Today we're going to look at how context changes everything, most specifically through the lens of the book of Matthew. What we are going to address, its historical background, what was taking place prior, what significance would it have carried, in particular for a first century Jew, Here's the problem is we do that. It's not the first century, and I did not grow up either religiously or culturally Jewish, I could be wrong, but perhaps you did neither. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to fight to understand what took place. Because as you and I understand the context, God's word comes to life. And you know why the Holy Spirit authored through a broken, sinful, and then repentant, believing, faithful, disciple-making, apostle, leading, Christ-exalting man named Matthew was to help people believe, was to help folks like you and to help folks like me, even in a different context. So if you have a Bible, turn. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and we're actually just going to look at the first half of that verse is we just set up how context changes everything. In order to really understand that, though, what we're going to end up doing is, as you journey to Matthew, we're going to end up looking at three things. We're going to look at what would a first-century Jew, through their eyes, through the lens of them receiving this, what would they have known? What would they have heard? And then what would they have likely wondered? Now the vast majority of our time today, we're actually going to end up spending that talking about what they would have known. In essence, we are going to do a summary recap of all that, right? Now if you know your Old Testament, if you know the Bible, if you're going to do like an overview of Scripture, here's much what that is like. Y'all ever been on a, uh, a flight And they have that overview picture where you can check and where there's that that airplane and then there's the line going from uh, takeoff to arrival destination and you can track that plane as it goes across. No one else gets bored on flights and wonders how much longer they have to sit there? Yes, you do. Your butt gets numb too. You totally do it. That's in essence what I want to do. Now on that, on that picture, as you're in that plane going over, they have that button and you can push it and it has the plus sign or the negative sign. You can zoom in where you can know, okay, right now, like for me, if I'm going from Texas to Georgia where my family is, I can know I'm over Mississippi, I'm, I'm over Louisiana or Alabama or wherever, but then I can push that zoom button, zoom in. We're not going to push that button today. We're gonna stay really high level because what I wanna show you is at a high level, What would it mean to a first century Jew to make the claim the Messiah has come? Is there more details? Yes. Many of you, you might perhaps even know those details. And many of you, this will be the first time as you even reflect or think about the Old Testament, you'll get to see this beautiful bridge in connection of God of the old is the God of the new. There is no change. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. But before we just even jump off or launch ourselves from Matthew 1.1, a few quick things that I want you to know about the book of Matthew. Its date, when was it written? The book of Matthew was likely written at the end of the 50s. So 50s A.D., early 60s. Jesus, he would have died anywhere from 33 to 35 A.D., approximately 25 years after that, the authorship of this book. You see, the gospel of Matthew, it's a biography It's an account of his life. The book of Matthew, he takes a lot of content from the book of Mark. He's actually gonna cover about 90% of it. But he's gonna expand from the book of Mark. And he's gonna add more to that. Specifically, there's this massive theme proclaiming how the king has come and he is advancing a new kingdom. Now if you know much of that, you would know Jews in the first century, they were awaiting a king. They were awaiting a new kingdom. But they thought this king would come with armies in victory and overthrown the power of Rome, would not ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, but would come in with an army behind him saying, it stops here. Jesus didn't do that. He did not come to bring an earthly kingdom in that sense, but he did something far greater. He brought about not the abolition of the oppression of Rome, but he gave hope for the spiritual condition of man, a change of the soul, Matthew, it's written to a Jewish audience. Mark, it was written to a Gentile audience. So not Jew, but Gentile. I know, it's a little bit of history. Stay with me. It matters. It's written to a Gentile audience. Instead of talking about Christ the king, it's really saying, not the king, the suffering servant. It's likely written to to Gentile Romans. Here's why that mattered. Have you ever thought God should be the almighty, powerful, cosmic ruler of the world who is almost detached, disconnected, and doesn't care about you? That's what a Gentile in Rome likely would have thought. When they thought of God, they thought of Zeus. Christ is shown instead as suffering servant. Do you see how Matthew's different? The book of Luke, it's written by this physician. It's this account of Christ, not as king, not as suffering servant, but as the son of God. This chronological order of this physician, this detailed mind outlining the biography of Jesus. Why? So that you and I and then the Gentile world might come to believe. And then the book of John. It's different. It's not the same way, even just a biography. It is written that faith might come. Here's why it matters. Do you see context changes everything? You got to know that from Matthew. Why? It's meant to grow faith in you. Grow faith in me. So with that in mind, Let's read verse one, chapter one, book of Matthew, and then we are launching into the Old Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'll read it again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're actually just going to look at really the first half of that verse. Now, here's what's true. You and I read that, and and perhaps, I could be wrong, perhaps, you're like, okay, interesting. right?" If you know where the chapter is going to go, next week we're going to literally break down a genealogy, a heritage, a family tree, if you will. And you might think, okay, I opened my Bible, I grabbed my cup of coffee in the morning, I came to this the genealogy of the book of Jesus Christ, and immediately you're like, this is boring. I know you're not supposed to say that. Right? But you probably feel that. That's the context we read it in. To a first century Jew, this was absolutely scandalous. To a first century Jew, this statement is part of the reason, the reason, excuse me, Jesus was killed. Statements like this were the reason that the end of the 50s, start of the 60s, believers in the way, Christians, little Christ were being pursued. And killed. Why? They would be so bold as to make the claim in the first line, in the first half, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Genealogy here, if you study this word, it actually means Genesis, right? In Greek, it's, it's Genesis. Right here, if you know your Bible, you know Matthew, he's doing something interesting, Remember, he's connecting with an audience that would have understood Old Testament scriptures, would have known them, would have studied them, would have been taught by them, would have heard of rabbis that would have gone around, that would have attended temple, would have heard all the stories. And he starts out with, this book is the Genesis. The beginning, the new beginning, the creation, the new creation. He's drawing this bridge all the way back to the start of your Bible. All the way back to the moment, and we'll go there in a minute, where God said, in the beginning. But then he comes and he says, Of who? Of who? This matters. Of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, Jesus was a very familiar name in First Testament. Or excuse me, in first century. Jesus in Greek, it meant Yeshua, right? Joshua is how we'd say it. It means Yahweh saves. It was common. A lot of folks were named Jesus. But that next word, Christ is what set the world on fire. You see, Christ in Greek, it means anointed one, chosen one. It is the Hebrew equivalent of Messiah. See, Jesus Christ, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ was a title. Christ was a pronouncement of kingship. Christ was a declaration that the promises of God of old, whether you know them or you don't, whether you understand the context or you don't, the promises of God all find their yes in Jesus. That's why they killed all kinds of followers. It's why at the end of the 50s, they would have gone preaching, proclaiming in boldness. and Then they would have been imprisoned because they would have said, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King. We have to understand this context because context changes everything. So what I want to remind you guys, I want to take a journey on what they would have known. So stick with me. Here's what we're going to do. We're now going to jump in that plane and we are going to fly over the narrative, redemptive history of your Old Testament. Are we going to leave out a bunch? Yes. Are we going to cover probably more than we should in the time that we have? Yes. And I can't, Wait. Here's what happens if you were to go to the very beginning. This book is beautiful. If you get to know God through it, it will transform and change your life. That's not an assurance for me, that is a guarantee from the creator of the universe. In the beginning, God, in the triune Godhead, creates the world. He speaks life into Adam, and from Adam comes Eve. They're in the garden and it's beautiful, and then a serpent comes and deceives and what was perfection becomes brokenness. Sin enters the world and it fractures everything. But God was not caught off guard. There's a moment where God, he's addressing the serpent, Adam and Eve, and he makes a statement. You don't have to turn to these. I'm going to read them. But these are things that a first century Jew would have known. These are things that a first century Jew would have had, would have grasped in the back of their mind that informed the context Genesis 3.15, a famous passage, speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, speaking of the offspring to come, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At the very beginning in the promise, in the moment of creation and then fall, there's a promise from God to all humanity. Here's what will come. One will come, an offspring from the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. It was a clear call. A savior's coming. A Messiah will be here. A king will come. Sin will not always rule in this world. There is a plan. You go forward in your book of the Bible, right? You're turning Genesis four, five, six, seven, eight, all the way up through about chapter 11. And you're gonna see the heart of mankind, it grows in brokenness and sin like yours and like mine. They turn from God in every wicked way. God sends a flood of judgment, yet delivers through a man by the name of Moses. His family comes and regrows the earth, and yet the earth is still defiant. They come to God and they build a tower, a tower of Babel. And they say, I don't need you, I don't want you. They build it in defiance of him trying to approach the heavens as God has said, no, 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 you don't come to me, you spread out, you multiply, fill the earth. God scatters them. What are they in need of? A savior, a messiah, a king. God finds a man by the name of Abram. His name will become Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham. We're going to talk more about this next week. But it matters that you know this. They would have had this context. It changes everything from Matthew 1.1. says to, to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm just going to read 1 through 3. That way you have it. But again, we're going to go in detail next week. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. The nation of Israel will come from one man, Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's this promise of land and offspring and a seed in a nation to grow in blessing. The ultimate blessing that would come from Abraham would be a Messiah, would be a savior, would be a king to come to usher in a new kingdom, They would have known this. Abraham will go, and in his foolishness, it will continue down through his son Isaac into Jacob. Jacob will have 12 sons. They will over time become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them famously is Joseph. If you know the story of Joseph, it's scandalous. But allows this budding, growing nation of Israel to move into Egypt. Now Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, he liked the Israelites for a while until he forgot about the faithfulness of Joseph. And then he oppressed them. He made them make bricks without straw, forced manual labor, labor, slavery. But what happened? God rises up a deliverer, one to free his people. Not the savior, not the king, but an example, a type of what might come. His name was Moses. Moses has the famous line, let my people go. Anyone seen the amazingly, biblically accurate, historically consistent movie with Christian Bale, Exodus? Okay, that joke fell flat. Yeah, if you missed that online, no one laughed, right? You don't have to see it. Prince of Egypt, anybody? All right, okay, we got a couple folks, right? Still not the best. It's a little more darker and sinister than much of that, but hey, still, whatever you're tracking with me. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. He hardens his heart. God sends plagues. He hardens his heart. God sends plagues until the final plague, the Passover lamb. The people of Israel, they sacrificed a lamb. They put the blood over the doors. The angel of God came at night and brought judgment. If you did not have the blood over the doors from the lamb, your firstborn died. There's a breaking point in the heart of Pharaoh as he lost his firstborn. Israel goes to leave. They run from Pharaoh. Pharaoh begins to chase. There's the famous story of the Red Sea. Here's why it matters. Who's the right redeemer that's gonna come in the oppression of the people of God running from the oppression of man? When will it end? They ran, Pharaoh's army is trapped in a red sea. You can read all this, this is the book of Exodus. We just journeyed up through about Exodus 1 through 20 and then at chapter 20, they come to the Mount Sinai. They receive the law of God, the first five books of your Old Testament. They get all of this in the heart of Moses. They come, but they're still foolish. They still have sin. Moses takes them and he's to lead them to the promised land. They get to the gates of the promised land and they look into the land, the land of Cain and the land that God had promised to them. And they look in there and they see there's giants. Who will deliver me? Who will win? There's giants. The people were faithless. They don't enter into the land. God has them wander the desert for 40 years until a new generation arises to go and enter. Here's why all this matters. There's a promise there's a prophecy that Moses makes at this point. Moses, the leader of God's people, he makes a prophecy and a promise to them at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. It, he's retelling them the law in this book, and he says to them, you gotta remember, context changes everything. Even if you're bored now, a first century Jew would have absolutely got this, remembered this, noticed this. Deuteronomy 18:15. the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. God promises from Moses a greater prophet, a true prophet, a true priest, a true king, a Messiah goes on from there they come and they enter into the promised land we're journeying on this we we are tracking like a plane high level they come and they get to the promised land except this time by faith they charge into it led by joshua the successor of moses he's scared he's timid at first but he depends on god and he goes in right before the famous battle at jericho the commander of the lord's army appears to joshua Joshua's there, and he's literally standing outside, and he sees someone, and at first he doesn't know what to take of it. He's scared, he's nervous, and who is he seeing? He's seeing the pre-incarnate Christ, the supposed king, Messiah that might come. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. I bet that was scary. Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no. Fascinating answer. If we had more time, we'd talk all about that. He denies, I'm not for you nor against you. And then what what is happening? But the commander of the army, but I am the commander of the army, excuse me, of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him, uh, and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to the servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Here's the thing, guys. God showed. He came down. He'd done this before. is the commander of the Lord's army. He's there in presence. It's holy ground, just like a burning bush with Moses. And who did he come as? Conqueror, warrior, leader of the army, king. This commander would come and would lead, even Joshua, the moments where the people of Israel are faithful and dependent upon God, would be the one to lead them into the promised land. God would win the victory, not the people by their might. This matters so much. The end of Joshua's life, though, there is no appointment of the next leader you get to the book of Judges. The book of Judges, it's this sense of almost about 400 years of failure in the history of Israel. See, they would depend on God. Then they would forget God. And when they forgot God, they would fall into sin. They'd be enslaved by sin. And then they'd realize the enslavement and they would cry out for deliverance. That cycle ever happened to you? You ever have a season in your life where you're so jacked up on connection with Jesus Christ, but then the next thing, it's, it's kind of like a fade? And then from the fade, you honestly, you kind of start to forget. You fall out of the practice of pursuing God. And then you find yourself in a situation or a place where you never would have thought you would have been years before, and you call for deliverance. God would raise up deliverers called judges. These were imperfect military leaders They did imperfect things. Many of them, their stories are scandalous. But there's this demonstration of an example of a type, of one to come, of a conquering king. Not the Messiah, but one who would be the right judge, the true judge. That leads us to kings. Here you come to the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. You get the story of King Saul. You can go back and listen to a series where we talked about him. Story of King David, of Solomon, but there's this promise to David. He comes and he says to David something amazing in 2 Samuel chapter seven, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, right to you and me, we just think, okay, that's a nice promise. Right here in this moment, he's speaking to King David. It's a covenant. We're going to talk about it more. And he's making a promise. Hey, David, through you, I'm going to establish a new kingdom. And that kingdom is going to reign and going to rule forever. From you, the scepter of Judah will continue. The kingdom to come. You have to understand first century context, even why they thought Jesus would come in as a conquering hero. Even why they thought a military victor, a king. I'm going to fast forward the next section as you go from that. David's son Solomon would give the nation of Israel, entrust it to his foolish son Rehoboam. The nation would split. There would be two kingdoms. There would be a northern one, the ten tribes of Israel. Southern, the two tribes of Judah. The North, over the course of, again, about the next 400 years. You can round all this. There'd be no faithful kings in the North. There'd be some in the South. There would be some, but not many. God, in judgment of his own people and their foolishness, rejection of him, would allow them to feel the weight of what it means to turn. He would allow them, out of love in discipline, to feel the weight of, okay, if you do not want me, I will show you what life apart from me entails. World power Assyria comes and conquers the northern tribe. There had been prophets preaching to them to repent, to turn. Years later, not too many, the southern tribe of Judah was still there. Another world power Babylon would come, would ransack Jerusalem, take captive these Israelites and send them away into a time of exile and captivity. You don't have to turn there, but there's a moment where Jeremiah, he was described as the weeping weeping prophet. He had watched the city of Jerusalem burn. And he says, one is going to come that will bring a new covenant. Could this Messiah, could this Christ be that king? They would have had this context. Time would go on, they'd be in captivity, But about 70 years later, they they would return to Jerusalem. This is Ezra. This is Nehemiah. They would rebuild the temple. They would rebuild the walls. And then after there's this faithful moment in the teaching of law, their hearts would drift. Do you see a pattern, church? Their hearts would drift. All of a sudden, they'd focus on building their palaces. Any of your hearts ever drifted from a zeal and a love of Christ to all of a sudden a zeal and a love for you? Yeah. Mine too. There would come a point at the end of the Old Testament, there was a prophet by the name of Malachi. He writes this rebuke of that remnant of God's people. The theme to this book, it's not the most positive. It's backsliding. The book, it's literally going to start with God reminding his people, which he would remind you and me. He'd remind them, here's my love for you from the past. I've always loved you. I've always been for you. I've always helped you. And then he's going to say, but man, here's the sin. Here's the stuff. I'm God. I'm loving. I'm just. But I'm not just going to look past that. You've got to deal with it. And then he promises his future coming. Now, when God promises his future coming in the Old Testament, here's something we know. There's his first coming. That's the Christmas story. And then there's his second coming. That's his return. But he makes this promise, and we're not going to read there, where he says, for you, though, eventually the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. After Malachi, there's 400 years of silence. It's literally, uh, my Bible has, has this. I don't know if you can see this at home. Right? So one page... To the left, Malachi chapter four. Next page, this, New Testament, y'all tracking with me? High level plane, we're flying over. I know you're bored, stay with me. It really matters. And then you get to the book of Matthew. The bridge from old to new. 400 years of them waiting for a word from God. Of hope. What about the promise of the Messiah? What about the king that is meant to come underneath the oppression, in particular right there, you're in Jerusalem, the the, the, uh, figurative Mecca of the Jewish faith. Where's the king? Where's the Messiah? That is what they would have known. This is what they would have heard. Now again, here's what I wanna ask you to do. Imagine you were a first century Jew and you likely, you probably lived in Jerusalem probably. There'd been a a spread due to persecution, but probably. You live in Jerusalem. Here's what you would have heard about this Jesus. You would have known of, likely first, John the Baptist. Why? You see, John the Baptist was this faithful Jew. He'd even taken this Nazarite vow, which meant he was like the special forces of the Jewish faith. And all of a sudden, he goes rogue. It would have been scandalous. You would have heard about it. He goes rogue, and he starts proclaiming to the people. The Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. And he points to Jesus, to a carpenter's son from Nazareth, a nowhere town who comes from even like scandalous background. Like, is that Joseph's boy? I don't know. I've heard there's something to that story. You would have heard of John the Baptist. You would have very much likely heard of Jesus' life, especially his adult life, where he came And it was marked by many things. You would have heard of a man who, even though he hadn't been formally trained by any rabbi, he had a teaching and authority that just changed lives. And when he spoke, he spoke as if his word was God's word. You would have heard about a man who went places and he fed the hungry. He cared for the prisoner. He healed the sick. Like one Who your heart just would have been drawn to. You would have heard that, man, yeah, he's a little crazy, but I'm telling you, if you can get there, it's great fish, great cook. I had some of his wine once. (smack) Delicious. You would have heard these things. Particularly if you lived in Jerusalem, you would have heard he died. You would have heard that he carried a cross, that he was crucified on a hill. Why'd they crucify him? He said he was the Christ, he said he was the Messiah. He said he was the promised king to come. They even mocked him with it. They put a sign on the top of the Christ. Here here is Jesus, king of the Jews. You would have heard likely after that, even in the moment, right? If not from you, if you hadn't lived in it, your parents, Jews, they would have told you. No, it was that afternoon, the sun went dark. The temple shook, the veil tore. We didn't know why, it was something crazy, but we we just kind of moved on. Hey, you don't want to get too messed up in that why. This, this Christianity, it was illegal under Roman rule. You would have heard, though, that he supposedly rose from the grave. You, you wouldn't have known. Hey, maybe the disciples stole him. Maybe there was some reason. But you would have heard he, like, rose from the grave. And maybe you even had friends that had witnessed him who had said, and you were like, wait, wait, is my friend crazy? I don't think so. And your friend's like, no, no, I saw him. I saw nail pierced hands. He came back. I was there perhaps even when Christ himself ascended into heaven, you would have heard that. You would have heard that after that, Jesus, he would have told his followers, those disciples, to go to Jerusalem, to wait in an upper room. You would have heard that some spirit, you wouldn't have known what spirit, but some spirit had come and descended on a people, and their lives had been changed. Cowards became courageous, and they went and they told the world, even as the world told them to stop telling. You would have heard about that. You would have heard about these people empowered by something different, bringing a unity and a love across racial, social, economic, education, all kinds of backgrounds, male, female, doing it all. You you would have heard of that, and you would have heard that they were lighting the city of Jerusalem on fire with this message. It was spreading, even as people tried to stop it. Why? They were going and saying, the one who died, the one who rose, was the king. He's the Messiah. You don't work to be in his kingdom. You believe in him. You believe he died for you. He died for me. And belief in that makes you an heir, makes you a prince, makes you a princess. No, 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 you don't understand. It's not through the law, it's not through your works. He's king and he dubs you in his kingdom by faith. A different story, that's what they would have heard here's what they may have wondered. Here's what they may have wondered, because here's what's true. Jews would have heard that, and there were those who did not believe. For example, Saul. Saul would have heard that, and he was zealously opposed to it. Until God changes his life, he becomes Paul. Then there would have been those Jewish believers who came to believe in faith by Christ. Here's what they may have wondered. Could this Messiah be the one that was promised to crush the serpent's head? Could this king be the one that was meant to be a blessing to all nations? Could this be the one from whom the scepter would not depart? I I hear he's from David's line. Could this be the commander of the Lord's army? I thought he would come and conquer. But maybe he came with a different kind of strength. Could this be the ultimate judge, the righteous one that would keep his people off the cycle of sin ultimately by defeating sin and death at its root? Could this be the one that was promised from David that would establish a kingdom forever? Could it be the one that the prophets preached about? They prophesied and said would come. Could it be that son of righteousness that Malachi comforted us with as we then waited in silence if you were reading this in the first century, you could have been in a, a, an infinite number of camps, but perhaps, generally, you categorize it as two. Wondering, maybe just like a pebble-in-your-shoe type of doubt. Could this really be him? And then you come, and you hear a reading of the book of Matthew, you find in some magical way a copy if you could read at the time, or it is told to you. You come and you hear the first sentence as you wonder, could it really be him? And you read the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse one, page one, first start claiming, this is the king. This is the one that you will bow to. Bow now, or you will bow then. This is the one who did not come and demand of you more, but died for you. The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who bore the sins of the world as a slain lamb who proclaims Messiah. Church, if you're reading this, here's what you got to know as we journey through the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, it is written to a Jewish audience. Scholars talk about, was it written to convert Jews entirely? Or was it even perhaps written to like believing Jews? They say maybe Jews in the church of Antioch. Here's what's true. whether to convert or to reinforce, to continue. It's written for the sake of belief. It was written to help Jews believe in the Messiah. It was written to help you and me believe. It was written, because many of you, you sit here, and you might be wondering, could this really be true? Could this really be the king? Could this really be the one that actually brings a comfort to my soul, even though I've tried to do more, I've tried to be different, yet I can't ever get it together, and I just have this internal anxiety and anger that I can't get rid of? Could this really be the one that could free me from that? Yes. Christ. I know I believed, but it has been hard. There have been ups, there have been downs, there have been moments of pain and tragedy where I sit there and I wonder, God, how could you do that to me? All the way to the moments where I'm trying to connect, but it feels distant. Could this be the one that left heaven to pursue me as king? Yes. When you read, when you hear Jesus Christ, context changes Everything. Here's the question. What does Jesus Christ mean to you? Is He the King? Is He the Messiah? Is He the Savior? Is He the Promised One of God? Or is He a good teacher, a nice form of morality, a Sunday morning You sit through because you kind of always have, and if you're honest, it's nice to get a break from your kids, and maybe they can get some morality while you do it. Who is he? He's the king. I can't wait to journey through the book of Matthew as we learn about our king. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word, even just how it is one beautiful divine book You have instilled it all. There's 66 of them, but there is this crimson thread that runs through it, connecting all of those who believe, pleading with those who don't to come that the blessing of the world is here. Thank you for crushing the head of the serpent that you might cherish me, that you might cherish your people. Lord, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.